If you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. And I know it's been two weeks ago when we were in this chapter. And we, we kind of ended in the area of verses 9 through 20. And so we're going to reread part of those. And I'm going to put a few things up on the screen as we go through the section that we've already covered. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9, it says, They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god or a molten graven image that is profitable for nothing. And so, two weeks ago, we covered the fact that idolatry is foolish. The idols and the idolaters are vain. There's no profit, and you see that in verse 9. It says, they shall not, things shall not profit. And then down verse 10, that is profitable for nothing. And so the idea that Isaiah is getting across both through a question as well as his statement is that idols as well as the idol worshipers, there's no profit in it. Now I'm sure the idol makers make some profit, but the people that own them, the people that worship them, there's no profit. And there will be shame. If you look at verse 9, it says that they may be ashamed. And then verse 11, we'll continue reading. It says, Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And so the idea is, is those associated with idols and idol worship, they're going to be ashamed one day. And it says, And the workmen, they are of men, let them all be gathered together, let them stand up, yet, yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. And so those that make the idols, those that worship the idols, all of them eventually, when the truth is known, when a light is shown upon the idols and the idol worshipers, when it comes into broad daylight, there's going to be shame related with idol worship. And so then Isaiah goes on to describe the process. In verse 12, he says, The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashion it with hammers, and he worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes, and he maketh it out with a compass, and he maketh it after the figure of man, according to the beauty of man, that it may remain in the house. He heweth, he heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and breaketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh a graven image and falleth down thereto. 
He burneth part thereof in the fire, with part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and say, Deliver me, for thou art a god. And so we covered those last week, or two weeks ago. And basically the title that I gave to it was, The Idolaters Have a Foolish Heart. Their heart fools them because their idols are made by man. They aren't really a god. There's the smith, the carpenter, and the man who cuts down the tree. And so everything is made by man and you're expected to worship it. And then Isaiah goes on and he just shows how ridiculous it is. The same tree, part of it is taken and put into the stove or oven that uses wood to provide the heat. And the wood also provides, provides warm, which I can relate to the need of needing warmth, having visited West Virginia, which is considerably more cold than Florida, the warmth feels good. And so he has the benefit of this piece of wood, this chunk of wood, this log, giving him food, giving him warmth. And then he takes the other part of the log and he makes an idol out of it. Just seems kind of weird that you can have an idol out of one half of the log and you can cook and be warmed and the other part of the log when it's done with is just a pile of ashes. And that's kind of Isaiah's point. It's some crazy thoughts that we as people have when it comes to idols. Depends on which half of the log you got as to whether it's an idol or whether it's ashes in the end. And so that's where we left off last week. And so now we're gonna continue going from verse 18 all the way down to verse 20. And so verse 18 says, They have not known nor understood, for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I've burned part of it in the fire, and yea, I've baked bread upon the coals thereof, I've roasted flesh and eaten it, and shall I make the re residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of the tree? He feedeth on ashes, a deceived heart hath turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And so it's talking part of the time here about the idol and part of the time about the idol worshiper. And this portion of it, I think is best titled, Idolaters are Blind and Deceived. And as I was reading this, it caused me to think about what Paul wrote in the book of Romans 
For those that have your Bibles available and, and easy to turn, if you turn to Romans 1, I want to read verse 20 to 32. Because we see what Isaiah is saying, but I think Paul gives us an explanation as to why is this this way? Why do people do this? Um, it's a pattern that we see over and over again. In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 20, it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are, are clearly seen. It's talking about God and his creation. It says the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so people see what God has done. And even though he is not visible through his creation, we know he exists. Um, saying that creation happened some other way than being created by God is like saying you could put a stick of dynamite in a junkyard and once it explodes you would have a nice brand new car it just doesn't happen it doesn't work that way and that's how ridiculous some of the ideas that deny there's a creation are and so Paul goes on to say because and so he's explaining why this happens he says because that when they knew God they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And so... The pattern here is if they're going to deny God, then they're going to turn to idols. And so he says, and they make these idols and fashion them after the things we see around us. In fact, I remember vividly one of the times Isaiah was talking about idols. Kurt made the comment, he says, why when they get them out of the fire are they always a four-footed beast? <laughs> I heard they a piece of cattle, you know, this idol. And there was a lot of idols that are that way. And part of the reason is to say they wouldn't fall over. And you see cases where God tipped over some of the idols of the Philistines and things. And so when we deny God, we start to follow our own imaginations. And when we do, we create idols. Um, Sad thing is, Christians don't get diplomatic immunity. We can create idols in our heart too, but those that deny God are more apt. They, they have a higher propensity to start worshiping idols. And so professing themselves wise, they became fools. And then it goes on to say, and change the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and the birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. 
This is the part that is the most concerning. He says, wherefore God also gave them up. The concerning part is God gave them up. If you think about it, I think one of the worst things that can happen to a person is God says, fine, I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. And here's what happens when that happens. It says, he gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, to change the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And then it goes on to say, for this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use unto which is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despisers, proud boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. If you look at this, Paul's telling us the reason why people turn to idols, and that is they deny God. They don't want to retain the knowledge of God, and we see that all around us. And so the idolaters are blind and deceived. They fail to see the irony in Isaiah's time that the same log, same piece of wood, is used for things that are profitable, food, warmth, and another part of it is used to create this abomination, this idol. And what you find is idol worship, back in that time, involved all sorts of immorality and all sorts of things that were basically violating God's commands. And you see in Romans that that pattern is when they deny God and they fail to give God glory, there's a slippery slope that they're walking down toward a reprobate mind. And then the other thing is they can't understand that the idols cannot deliver their soul or save them. I mentioned to you the idea of a genie in the bottle. The pagan ideas that were going around concerning idols is if you and I went to war, either against each other or against a common enemy, 
If our gods were more powerful, our idols were more powerful, then we would be victorious in battle. Now, if you apply that to the Jewish people, they would basically say Jehovah is our God. And they would say because Assyria or Babylon has defeated us, their gods must be more powerful, that our God is not capable. This is the logic that would go through their Jewish mind based on the influence of paganism around them. These pagan idols are more powerful than Jehovah. And so God is constantly bringing into their mind the fact that this idea is false, that idol worship is vain, that it's unprofitable, that it's going to bring about shame. And so Isaiah has been hitting on this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit multiple times because this is the trap that they've gotten themselves into and they're focused on worshiping idols. Yes. That's interesting. I, I didn't realize that, but John brings up even some of the more recent history that illustrates this, that General MacArthur wanted American, America, American churches in particular, to send missionaries to Japan because their view is that the American way is superior to the Japanese way because we won the war. And we didn't do that, and they remain to this day one of the most secularized and unreached uh, people groups in the world. And we had a chance as churches uh, back at that time, but instead factories were sent over there. And by the way, they adopted um, statistical processing in their factories, whereas Americans kind of half did and half didn't. And that's why you find what used to be true, people would say, oh, that's Japanese junk, became now superior to American manufacturing. But the tragedy is they never heard about the God that our forefathers came here to worship and escaped religious persecution by fleeing mainly Europe and came and started America. And so, summary about the idols. The idols and the ashes come from the same source when you look at what Isaiah is trying to get across. The idols have no answers for the meaning of life and can't determine our destiny in life, although worshiping them 
instead of the one true God definitely determines our destiny in eternity. And then therefore, if you look at his, his argument, it's foolish to believe, trust, and worship idols. And so that brings me to a question. What are the main idols that we see in our world today? I'm not talking about idols that may make it into the church because there's some of those too. But I'm talking about when you look out across our world and our nation, what are the idols that people worship today? Okay, number one might be money. Roxanne, is that what you had? Okay, self-sufficiency, comfort, material possessions. Okay. The tablets, all those electronic stuff that people are like, that's an idol. You sit in front of it all day. You're in church, you're on there. That's your idol. Okay. So, as we said before, anything that becomes between us and God. And so, uh, people have their tablets, their phones, and all sorts of things. And if that's the focus it can become our idol. Nancy and then Wayne. Military supremacy. Okay, those that look at power as their idol. Wayne? Sports figures. Okay, sports figures. Okay, and I thought I saw another hand over this way, I guess not. So the first one that I thought of was humanism. And humanism basically says we will be God and God will be us. And so in substitute of God, mankind considers themselves to be God. Bill, you have something? Yeah, I just, is that the same thing as pride? Yes, pride is a, a big part of it. That, that seems like it's so hard to negate that uh, negative Get rid of that. Yep, absolutely. Pride is something that I think every one of us fight with, and it shows up in the ideas of humanism, uh, the idea of us being our own God. Um, another one is evolution, which is man's attempt to dismiss creation and deny the existence of the one true God, the one that has created us, Wayne? And it's funny you mentioned evolution because that primarily replaced the Bible in schools. Absolutely. What was taught initially as a theory now is being taught as though it's fact, and it replaced the Bible and, and God in schools. Steve? Okay, definitely if you look at all of the gender ideology, it falls in line with what we read in Romans of a reprobate mind, where people are trying to deny the way that they were created. And that brings us then to science. An alternative to believing God is believing the science. And they say, oh, follow the science, follow the science, but then they don't follow the science because the true science is going to discover the truth that God made us, both in 
looking at the microscopic level as well as looking at the macroscopic level, which would be you know, space itself, it all speaks to the fact, like Roman said, that there's a creator, someone that made this, that transcends creation, and that's Jehovah. And then there's another couple, and these aren't all of them, but these kind of hit the main ones, pleasure, which would be immorality, entertainment. This is where the sports would come into play, um, pun intended. And so you look at it, there's pleasure that some seek, and then there's power, control and manipulation of others. And this is where I think money would also come into play. And so what you see is these are five it's not an exhaustive list, but these to me were the main ones, the ones that you can drop a lot of other ideas into. And so it's not like we look back on Isaiah and the history of the Jews and say, oh, well, we aren't that way today. The reality is, is we're made out of the same stuff. And the church is not immune from it either. Um, we may be saved by grace, but that doesn't mean that we are free of this fleshly nature right now. We don't get that freedom until we get a glorified body. And so we have to watch out because the same types of idols, but with a slightly different twist, may enter into our hearts. And we may substitute it for God. And in fact, if I were to say the biggest one in fundamental Baptist churches, it would be being legalistic. Bringing things in, you know, uh, the idea would be, the question was asked in Acts, what must I be do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And do this, and this, and this, and thou shalt be saved. That's man's wisdom, putting the and this, and this, and this, to the fact that we need to just believe on Jesus Christ. And the truth is, is once we've believed on Jesus Christ, then we need to guard our heart from letting it pursue idols. And so we spent a lot of time on it because Isaiah did. But the good news is God didn't forsake Israel and he hasn't forsaken his church. Starting in verse 21, we'll read to the end of the chapter. We won't get through it. And next week's another combined Sunday school event. So in two weeks, we'll pick up where we leave off today. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 21 says, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel. Now, it's good for us to remember. The question is, is what are we supposed to remember? Just as these. The commentaries are not in agreement, which doesn't surprise me. Some say it's what's already been mentioned, the idols. Some say it's what's about to be mentioned. And so as we do this, my solution is simple. Remember both. 
the danger of idols, but also the blessing and redemption of God. And so he says, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant. O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, ye, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretched forth the heavens alone, that stretched forth the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and make diviners mad, and turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish that confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited and to the cities of Judah, ye shall be built. I will raise up the decayed places thereof that saith to the deep, be dry and I will dry up thy rivers that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. And so there's a whole list of things here that God is saying to Israel. He's telling them that he's redeeming them. And if we look at these things that have followed that statement of remember these, what are the things that God is bringing before Israel that they should remember? Now, obviously, they should remember the idols are vain and not profitable, and you'll be ashamed pursuing that. But also... There's things God is doing that he wants them to remember. What is that? He's wiped out their transgressions. He's wiped out their transgressions. Okay, that's probably the biggest one, but there's other things in there before that. Yes, ma'am. He created them, and that's on my list too. That's a great one. He created them. We need to remember that we're God's creation. What else? He hasn't forgotten them. It's easy if you, if you put yourself in their shoes, especially when the Assyrians come and destroy the northern kingdom and Babylon is knocking on the door about to take them captive. It's easy to think, well, God's forgotten us. But he tells them, I haven't forgotten you. What else? He created the whole universe. And so the one that has the power to create the whole universe is the one making these promises. So he has the power to keep his promises. What else? Ah, they are his servant. Who do they belong to? They belong to Jehovah. 
And so he says, thou art my servant. The other one that was mentioned by someone already is, I have formed thee. And so he formed them. And then he says, thou art my servant again. And the first phrase up there should say, thou art my servant, and thou art my servant. Yeah, I got a typo there. And so, thou art my servant. And so he says it twice. And if you think about it, if we could put ourselves in their shoes with the enemy at the door, ready to overwhelm them and take them captive, it probably is a big comfort to know who you belong to. That you're God's creation, but also you are his servant. And then God, the other thing that was mentioned, God will not forget them. It's not that God has forgotten and abandoned them. It's that their sin has created a problem. And that then gets us to a continued list where he's blotted out their transgressions and sins. Um, when I was reading that, the fact that it's blotted out kind of caught my attention. It's like you see on the news, they say so-and-so had this long rap sheet. And if they hold the paper up there and it's all blacked out, they call it redacted. And so it's like God has redacted all of the sins and transgressions of Israel. Now think about that for a minute personally. When we accept Jesus to be our savior, in effect, that's what happens for each one of us. If they were to hold up a sheet of all the things we did wrong in our lifetime, well, it's probably a book, not a sheet. And there might be a few good things here and there, but the problem is, is our justice system, what it used to be, was if you did the crime, you did the time. Not anymore, but in God's court, if you violate his law, if you sin, which is missing the mark, you aren't measuring up to what you should be doing. If he kept that list, and yeah, the book may have some good things that you've done, but look at all the bad ones. We would be found guilty based on doing those things. But when we accept Jesus, all of the transgressions and sins get redacted. So it looks pretty good what God's doing. And, and I like really the 10th verse of Ephesians 2, which Brother Bob mentioned and brought up earlier. We're created unto good works. So once we're saved, our sins and transgressions are redacted. But if we're obeying and we're trusting God, then there's going to be a list of good things that he accomplishes in and through us. And so the same is true of Israel. According to one commentary, redemption is linked to sin and transgressions. But I think to the typical Jew, 
in Isaiah's time, but then 150 years later when Babylon is at the door, I think they're thinking of redeeming them from captivity. But if you think about true captivity, it's our sins that keep us captive. Um, and Israel's no exception. And so they may have been thinking of deliverance from Assyria and Babylon as their first thought. But the truth of the matter is, we all need saved from our sins. And the greater redemption is where he blots out our sins and transgressions. In verse 22, he talks about that. He says, I've blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. And I don't know about you, but you look up at those clouds and you think, oh, they look so nice until they turn so dark and ominous looking. But I, I have been on a plane a few times and I've heard from someone that was a pilot that he flew through a cloud and he couldn't see his hand in front of him. Okay, and this is back when they had open air planes, not the modern ones with the cockpit that's sealed. Notice also in verse 22, he says, return unto me for I have redeemed thee. And so he's telling Israel to return unto him, to turn away from the idols that he's been mentioning and turn back to God. I think we need to realize the fact that there needs to be a human response to God's divine work. Here he says, return unto me for I have redeemed thee. When we're saved by grace, there's still a need for us out of gratitude, not out of earning salvation, but out of gratitude to respond to the God that he's, has given his only begotten son so that we could have eternal life. And that's, we need to return to him. We need our heart to be focused on trusting God. We face the same issues that the Jews faced we as a church, they as his chosen people, have a necessary response out of gratitude to God to return to him. And so Isaiah brings that up. He basically tells them he's redeemed them. In fact, that's mentioned twice. And then he says he's glorified himself in Israel. And this is down in verse 23. And all creation is also invited to, to praise God for his wondrous works, but in particular, the fact that he has redeemed Jacob. And it's through his work with his servant Jacob and Israel that he's glorified. Because people, when they see what he's done, will realize it's out of mercy and love. It's not out of him being vindictive toward his people. Well, we are pretty much out of time. We will pick up next, uh, on two weeks, in verse 23 and go to the end of the chapter and probably get into the next chapter.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love for us. As we look at Israel, we see the fact that you have not forgotten them. And it's true of all of your people. And Father, our sin brings upon us many times some of the consequences and judgment that, that we've seen happen to Israel and we now see in our own country. And Father, we pray for revival for our country. We pray that as we go into the worship service, that Christ would be exalted and that we would honor and glorify him because of the great salvation that he purchased for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.